0: I see a few new faces. I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, along with Pastor Charles and Pastor Cleet. So grateful to have you out here this morning. Thank you, Brian, for leading us in song. And thank you, Brian, for unearthing an old song. I'd never heard that song before. Have you all? There's some good songs from the past that address attributes of God that tend to be overlooked today. That's kind of an indictment on modern Christianity that there's about one or two attributes of God that songs tend to emphasize at the expense of others. And today we are going to look at an attribute of God that probably doesn't receive a whole lot of attention but ought to because it's part of understanding the gospel, what we've been saved from, and who we are saved to. But before I do that, I did mention uh, this week that we have a couple of very significant announcements. Nick and Tina are going to take announcement two and three at the end of service, so if you're online, don't cut out after the sermon and the songs. We have some significant closing announcements. But the one I want to make is this. Wednesday, August 4th, as a church, we are going to start having a weekly midweek gathering. That's Wednesday, October 4th. That's two months away. We're going to start a weekly midweek gathering consisting of a meal. Food makes everything good. And then Bible study And a time of prayer. So basically what it will look like, and we'll be making many announcements and inviting people to help out in various ways to support this new endeavor. But from 6 to 6.30, we will have an all-hands-on-deck meal here at the post office. And then from 6.30 to 7.30, we will have a time of Bible study led by one of the elders, 30 minutes on that, and then 30 minutes in prayer. And really, our hope is this is going to be highly relational You might call this a home group on steroids. All of us coming together. We'll put out the tables and we'll have a nice meal together. It will be instructional. We'll be walking down the Word of God. And it will be intercessional. We'll be spending time in prayer together. And our hope is that it will not only be relational and uh, intercessional and instructional, but ultimately that it will be powerful, that it will grow us up more in the faith as we reach out. So when are we starting that? Yeah, that's good, good. And it's so important that at least for this season, we are putting home groups on pause or hold. And Pastor Charles has already reached out to all the home group leaders, to let them know this. We are going to continue uh, men's ministry and women's ministry, and we're going to be enhancing the DNA groups a little bit. There'll be information coming out about that before too long. But the reason, we're just trying to clear the calendar so that we can have max participation in this midweek meal and gathering starting August 4th. And it's also so important that if you look at your calendar, it's actually about two months away. When in the world has Restore ever announced something that far ahead of time? Well, it's today. We did it, okay? And we're doing that so that you can clear your calendar, make the adjustments, and do what you can to be part of this one of two significant gathering points in the rhythm and cadence of everyday restore uh, life. Now, our goal is to, as I just said, to build people up, so it'll be uh, elders leading us in instruction through books. I think, uh, well, for our first uh, body of teaching, Pastor Cleet has designed a series on justice and righteousness, a very relevant topic for our time. He will uh, assign uh, topics to different elders, and we'll have that. That'll be our first teaching package. And we'll just continue to use that time to grow us up. But the other thing we want to do is not only grow us up in the faith, but to reach out with the faith, to reach out with the faith. And what we're going to do is, during the warm weather months, and we certainly are in those months now, the first and third Wednesday of every month... We will still have our meal from 6 to 6.30-ish, but then we'll spend the next hour just walking through our streets, talking to our neighbors, greeting them, inviting them, handing out cards, praying for them, seeking opportunity to share the gospel. We're having some cards made up. One card that talks about our Sunday gathering. One side talks about our Sunday gathering. The other side, our midweek gathering. So we just want to reach out. And by the way, in our context, a midweek gathering is very important much a cultural rhythm. I talk to guys on my baseball team about the Lord in various places, and they often ask, hey, do you have a Wednesday night prayer meeting? And the answer now will be, yes, we do. In fact, it's a prayer meeting with a meal and some Bible study thrown in as well. Finally, I will be contacting eight individuals, singles, family units to help provide a meal kind of in a two-month rotation, So I already have one family that will be providing a meal. They share the same last name as I have. We'll be doing one, and that means we need seven other family units to do that. Now, you can jump the gun on me and come to say, hey, I'll I'll provide that meal, but if not, I'll probably grab a few by the collar gently and say, hey, would you be interested in doing that? Um, We'll probably have a little donation jar. Maybe we can budget this. Uh, It doesn't have to be anything big lobster, T-bone, that's fine, okay, uh, for these meals. But, you know, spaghetti, pizza, whatever. Um, Wednesday, July 21st, we're going to jumpstart letting our neighborhood know about this meeting by simply having a night of pizza and then walking through the streets and handing out some cards. Um, we'll also be making, uh, telling the neighborhood about something else we'll be doing, but Nick and Tina will share that. That's a lot, but what's the big idea? Somebody tell me back. That's, you always repeat to know that people got it. Wednesday meeting consisting of food. Don't forget that. Bible study and prayer. Good, tight, 90-minute time. We want to make it accessible. People are working. You can run in from work. You can have your scrubs on, all of that. Come and get something to eat. Come and get something to eat, right? And then let's, let's pray to our Father again. All right. Well, I don't know if that's a good introduction for what I'm going to talk about, but it is what it is. I want us to just to pray briefly, not to check the box because it's a church thing, but because we need the Spirit of God to open our eyes right now. Father, we just and I just settle my heart right now before you. We're going to dive into some um, high octane stuff, um, but it is biblical. It is needful and it is powerful. Lord, for whatever reason, any person finds themselves here, whether willingly or under the duress of pressure, ultimately they're here because you have them here. And I pray that your spirit would open our eyes. I pray that your spirit would unstop our ears, that we might see you and hear you. And Lord, I pray that you would change us, Lord, and help us to face head on something that is so easily cast aside and dismissed as outdated because the scripture is never outdated. So we submit to you. You are our Lord. Your word is our authority. So we bow down before you and ask that you would show us your glory even as Moses prayed all those years ago. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to begin with a question and answer. I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you either can answer hopefully out loud and audibly yes or no. And if you're a bit more timid, just a thumbs up or thumbs down will do. The question will be this. Have you ever seen this scripture... Or could you ever imagine seeing this particular scripture on a coffee cup, on a t-shirt, on a plaque in somebody's den as you walk into their house, or on, I don't know if I said calendar, any of that stuff. So, here's, here's the first verse. 1 John, uh, boy, I lost the address, Four, eight. is it? Um, God is Love. Thank you, the four of you that are right here right now. Okay, what do you think? Yeah, God is love. Sure, you've seen that. It's a beautiful verse. God is love. How about this one? Matthew 22, 39. Love your neighbor. Yes, that that was a hearty affirmative right there. How about this one? Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Yes. How about this one? Nahum 1-2. The Lord our God is an avenging God and wrathful God. (laughs) Anybody? Maybe somebody has a plaque. Oh, there we go. Because we know that the wrath of God is neither a palatable or popular topic. Am I right? And yet the history of revival, both in the book of Acts and then through Christian history, reveals that when revival begins to come, the people of God return, and here's the big idea, they return to the reality of the wrath of God. We have a spade up here. Following the motif given us by Martin Lloyd-Jones, digging out old wells to get back to fresh water, we're digging down and getting back to certain essential truths. We want to talk about the outpouring of the Spirit, but Jones makes the point, sometimes you got to do a little digging, get some sweat on your brow and calluses and blood on your hands and blisters. So we've been getting back to the authority of God's Word. That was one message, get back to the book. Last week, Pastor Cleet preached on getting back to the... um, unequivocal necessity of absolute obedience to God. That obedience is not secondary optional. Well, today we're going to get back and recover the reality of God's wrath. Now, what goes through your mind when you hear God's wrath? What is wrath? You ought to be asking that question biblically. One person put it this way. God's wrath is what happens when God's holiness meets our sinfulness. God's wrath is what happens when God's justice meets our rebellion. God's wrath is what happens when God's righteousness hits our unrighteousness. God's wrath is what happens when his pure good meets our pure evil. Now let me give you a definition. There's tons of definitions you could use. Here's one that's rather user friendly. God's wrath is this. The wrath of God is his holy and righteous response to all that is wrong and evil. The wrath of God is God's holy and righteous response to all that is, holy, to all that is wrong and evil. And as you can see, you really can't talk about one attribute of God disconnected from another attribute of God. You would expect, of course, the world to recoil at the idea of the wrath of God, right? But increasingly, Christians dismiss the wrath of God. Did a bunch of reading, of course, in Scripture, but then in the history of the church's understanding of the wrath of God this last week. And I came across uh, one scholar making this observation that before 1750, you would have been hard-pressed to find any re- reputable pastor or theologian who would have objected to the wrath of God. And yet today, somebody can write a book called Love Wins, in which they deny the reality of the wrath of God, and people say, Oh, what a marvelous work of. No, it's not a marvelous work, it's a twisting of scripture. The earliest Christian ecumenical creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, talked about the reality of God's wrath. In fact, the Athanasian Creed actually puts it on blast even more and spells it out. More significantly, the Scripture itself unabashedly talks about the wrath of God. Now, the purpose of this message is not to provide a defense or an apologetic for the wrath of God. I don't need to defend something that is. I just want to help us recover its reality. However, I'll do just a little bit of apologetics. I would say this if I was talking to, you know, a guy on my team. What's this thing about the wrath of God? I would say this. A God who did not get angry at sin or evil or wrong would be no kind of God at all. Just like a father would be no kind of father if his kids were abused, and he's like, oh, whatever, who did not want to deal decisively with the evil done to his child, right? That's why historically love or wrath has seemed to be a function of love. It has been described as wrath as God's love in action against evil. So as much as people might bristle against the idea of the wrath of God, people actually long for it. You talk to anybody who has walked through the gas chambers of Auschwitz, and you see if they have a problem with the wrath of God, God's holiness and righteousness, dealing with sin and evil. You talk about lynching trees. You talk about the abuse of children, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I want want God to make those wrong things right, right? The disconnect is this. We just don't want God's holiness and righteousness to come directed at us and our sin. Understandably so, because as the writer of Hebrews, quoting from Deuteronomy says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So for someone to say, my God is too loving to send someone to hell or to pour out his wrath is really to say, I don't want a God who will make wrong things right. Which people are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. On one hand, why won't God do something about all this evil and And the answer is, oh, he's going to. Well, I don't like what he's going to do. What you're really saying is when you refute the wrath of God is you don't want God to deal with evil. Second of all, to say that you don't believe in the wrath of God, that, God would be, that your God is too loving to send someone to hell, people say that, you should at least have the intellectual honesty to say that your God is not the true and living God of the Bible. Because the true and living God of the Bible is a wrathful and avenging God, Nahum 1-2. And third of all, I would say this, that at the end of the day, God sends you to hell or God pours out his wrath because you refuse to come to him. In John chapter 3, Jesus said the reason people don't come to the light is because they love darkness and their deeds are evil. So, people make that choice. So, to pin that on God... Well, you got to wrestle with Scripture on that. So instead of saying, my God is too loving to send someone to hell, which is what we should say as believers, my God is so loving that even though there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand or hard to accept, he knows the end from the beginning. He's God and I'm not. And I accept this from his hand. Now, with these brief caveats... In this brief introduction, I just want to quickly, before we dive into our text, remind us of something that I just put on blast, that the wrath of God, namely, is denied or downplayed or dismissed today. And I want to turn to a book that if you have never read, I would heartily recommend it to you. It is called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Anybody ever read this book? One of the best, like, if you're discipling somebody, this would be a great book. It talks about the love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God. Great book. But he also talks about the wrath of God in one of the chapters at the end of the book. He wrote this in 1973. I want to ask you how applicable you think this quote might be for us here today. He writes... The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play this subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness but says virtually nothing about his judgment. How often in the past year did you hear, or if you are a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? How long is it, I wonder, since a Christian spoke straight on this subject on radio or television, or in one of those half-column sermonettes that appear in some national dailies and newspapers? And if one did so, how long would it be before he would be asked not to read, to write, or speak again? The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society. And Christians, by and large, have accepted that taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter of the wrath of God. We may well ask whether this is as it should be. For the Bible behaves very differently. One cannot imagine that talk of divine judgment was ever very popular. Yet the biblical writers engage in it constantly. One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath. Clearly, the theme of God's wrath is one about which biblical writers feel no inhibitions whatever. Why then should we? Why do we soft-pedal it? Now, do you think that's an applicable quote for today? Does it describe (laughs) maybe Christendom to a degree? What I want to show us is how biblical this doctrine is. We're going to take a look in the rearview mirror. We're going to look at right now and we're going to look forward. In other words, we're going to see that God's wrath has been poured out in the past. God's wrath is being poured out in the present. Important to note this month. And one day God's wrath will be poured out in fullness. This is Bible, this is not Mike, okay? So let's dive in. First of all, the wrath of God was poured out in the past. And we're going to turn to uh, uh, Romans 1 for the second point. I'm just going to survey some Old Testament stories. In the crunch, round, hurt, or felt around the world, Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit, right? God had said, in the day, you can eat any tree you want, just don't eat that tree. And the day you eat of it, you shall die. Well, you know the story They took of the tree, and for that, they were exiled from God's immediate presence, right? They were banished. That was a particular expression of the wrath of God, of his holy and righteous response to all that is wrong and evil. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe he was a good God. They said, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm my God. Well, because when they did that, they injected the pandemic of sin into the bloodstream of humanity so that all of us are born sinners. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God looks upon the earth and he saw that every imagination of the intention of their hearts was only evil continually. That's not a great uh, summary, is it? So what does God do? He floods the earth. Genesis 6 through 9. Everybody except a handful of people who believe God, Noah and his family, are destroyed in a worldwide flood. But again, even though they were righteous because of faith in God, they still carried in their bloodstream, as redeemed people do today. (laughs) The, the, The virus of sin. So you get to Genesis chapter 19, and you got two cities. Anybody know where I'm going with this one? Sodom which is the word, where we get the word sodomy from. That's instructive. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by fire and brimstone. Now, I don't put my hope in archaeologists. I put my hope in the God of this book. But it's interesting. Archaeologists have recovered one of those places full of fire and brimstone. Hmm. You go on a little bit further, and you get to, say, Exodus 14 and 15. The Egyptians are terrorizing, brutalizing The Israelites, God says, no, I'm going to rescue you. And you know the story. The whole Egyptian pharaoh's army is annihilated by the wrath of God at the Red Sea as he just lets the water crush them. Hubcaps and hearts and everything in between destroyed. Then you keep on going, that's kind of the wrath of God on a macroscopic level. On a microscopic level, you get a little vignette of this in Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu, they know how to worship God their own way. So against the clear decree of God, they bring some strange fire up into that temple. Bam! God drops them. That was the wrath of God. Or you go to Numbers chapter 16. Korah thinks he knows better than the God-ordained leader Moses and Aaron and the rest of them. So Korah raises up a squad of people. They begin to murmur and complain and talk behind the scenes and, and, and foster rebellion and dissension and all that. God ain't having that. And he opens up the ground and they literally are buried alive. I can't imagine a worse way to die than being buried alive. And if that's not enough, the survivors, their households included, are hit by fire from heaven above. These are not just Bible stories we try and clean up and sanitize for children's church, right? These are graphic stories Meant to grip us and to stun us with the reality that the Lord is holy and righteous. And that ain't good for someone who persists in their sin. I could go on and on and on. But I think I've made the point, right? It was poured out in past. In fact, I'll just add this and then we'll move on. In the Old Testament, there are over 20 words that re- reference the wrath of God that appears some 582 times. So it's not like I'm trying to just take a verse out of context, for crying out loud, right? This is thoroughly biblical. The wrath of God was poured out in the past. Now, second of all, the wrath of God is being poured out in the present. As I just said, when Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged all of humanity into sin as well, right? Right? It says in Romans 5 and 21, Wherefore is by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, then death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Why? Because all sinned. The penalty for sin is death. It's an expression of God's wrath. So first of all, physical death, and second of all, eternal spiritual death separated from his presence. You know what that means? Somebody wrote this. This was so gripping for me every cemetery you ever pass we had this game growing up that when you drive past a cemetery you got to hold your breath who's played that game and you get to a long cemetery i can't do this our breath should be taken in a different way because every time you drive past a cemetery this man said it's a testimony to the reality of the wrath of god death by sin every time he said you attend a funeral That is a clarion call to the living to flee the wrath to come. In fact, Psalm 90 says that the brevity of human life now, it's called a a sigh. The brevity of human life is a mark of God's wrath that hangs over humanity. Now, Romans 1 and verse 18 reads this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Is that a coffee cup verse? (laughs) Is that a gallant? No, not really. He says the wrath of God is revealed in the present indicative tense meaning you you, you could translate it this way. The wrath of God is being right now revealed from heaven. So, being a student of Scripture, you should ask the question, well, why is the wrath of God being revealed? And then more uh, relevantly is, more relevant, it would be, why is the wrath of God being revealed? Okay? So, we want to ask the text the question, well, why is the wrath of God? And then how? Why is it? And he says, because of all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, anybody have the text in front of them? They do what with the truth? Suppress the truth. It's a willful, volitional holding down of the truth that's apparent to everybody, that God is God. Last night we began, because we got a heat wave coming, setting up our little, nice little backyard pool. We're on like year four. We don't know if the liner is going to make it. We're taping up holes and all that got a little basketball hoop near it. And what we do once we get it filled up is we love to play basketball in there, play with other floats and stuff. And it's kind of fun to take that basketball and hold it underwater. But what happens if you take the, your hands away? Pops up and maybe it will hit somebody or whatever. We're, we're, we're suppressing, if you will, that, that, that basketball. We're willfully Volitionally holding it down. And I'm just telling you, the fool has, has in his heart, there is no God. God doesn't even bother to give a defense of his existence. He just says, I exist. And our text tells us in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them, namely his invisible attributes. And you see that through what has been made. You, you don't walk in this room and say, well, these chairs just set themselves up, Right? This floor just got itself swept. No. You say, there's a deacon named Leo who makes so much of this happen. There's a mind behind the order in here, right? And you look at creation and ecology and the seasons, that tells us there is an incredible mind behind everything that's been made. From your fingerprints to the galaxy. But what man does, this is how we suppress the truth, two ways, and I'm just going to run through this part. First of all, we explain him away. We explain him away. Well, this is how it really happened. This is what really the deal. And listen, just because somebody has a white jacket on and a PhD, they may know a lot of good things, and they may be a gift of God to do a lot of great things for humanity, but they might have some foundational truths that are not according to truth. Foundational presuppositions, I should say, okay? He's explained away, and this is, you can't, whenever somebody starts to reject God or something about God, they trade that truth for a lie. So they explain him away, and then they exchange the worship. It says, you can see this in verse 25, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what you see is idolatry, right? Suppress the truth, explain away the evidence, and then you begin as worshiping the lie, the creature that you put in its place. That's why the wrath of God is being revealed. Now, how is the wrath of God being revealed? There are three verbs used. God, for this reason, God gave them over. For this reason, God gave them over. For this reason, God gave them over. Again, this isn't Mike just telling you something. This is the word of God speaking to us. Here's the first why. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to what? Impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What he's talking about right there is rampant sexual immorality. I don't, see, I don't even think kids born today understand how much sexual immorality is out there. Every, how, so much of stuff has got sexual innuendo, a sexual movement, and it's just funny. And if you say, you know, I don't think that's so hot, oh, you're just being puritanical, patriarchal, or whatever. We live in a time of rampant sexual immorality. When the vast majority of kids are born without a father there, and this is not a personal indictment against anybody. Listen, I've got my past, you've got your past. We're talking about societal level things, right? And God can scoop anybody out of grace of any bad decision you've made, and I've made mine. But this is what the Apostle Paul is saying, right? Rampant, sexual immorality. In fact, you start talking like, you know, maybe you ought not to watch that or listen to that. Well, you're just being legalistic. No, maybe you just care about the holiness and righteousness of God. We live in an X-rated time. I don't think it's insignificant to say that, um, how would I put it? Uh, Like a, a PG movie today would have been an R about 20 years ago. That's true. That's true. And and ours today probably would have been an X 20 years ago. And it's just accepted. You know why? Because it's God giving over a society. You don't want to eat out of the trough, you can eat out of it. Number one, he gives them over to sexual immorality. Then, watch this, verses 26 and 27, he gives a society over to widespread and accepted homosexuality. Look at verse 29. For this reason, God gave them up to what kind of passions? Dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving to themselves the due penalty for their error. You don't need no Greek to understand what God's saying there, right? Right? Right. And here's what you should ask. The first thing that he's given humanity over to, a society over to, that turns their back on him over time, is he gives them over to rampant immorality. Isn't homosexuality just a a particular flavor of that, right? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So why then does he actually make this a second thing precisely? Because he could have just said, he could have just put that under sexual immorality generically, right? He doesn't do that. He actually precisely names this specifically as a second thing a society has given over to. Why? Why does he do that? Well, uh, letting the text speak, speak for itself because, because it is so unnatural, because it is so unnatural. their women exchange natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations. So I think the answer is God doesn't just lump this in with verses 25, 24 and 25 because it is so unnatural. It used to be that people just wanted to come out of the closet, and now people want to change their birth certificate and command you to celebrate that. And Christians are jumping on board with that. Now to be sure, Tony Evans, I listened to his message on this text, it was really helpful. Tony Evans did make the point that for a tiny fraction of a percentage point of people there are chromosomal issues. We live in a fallen world, the fall has even hit our bodies, right? And so there would be a struggle. What, what, what gender am I? And to those people, we ought to have nothing but care and compassion, right? Amen. And he also makes the point that many people get caught up into homosexual practices as a result of abuse that they've experienced. And there likewise ought to be incredible care and incredible compassion. But don't let that overshadow what he's getting at right now. Because he is not addressing so much people on an individual level, but on a societal level. And what he is saying is the mark of him pouring out his wrath on a society is that he makes, he gives them over to widespread, accepted, celebrated homosexuality. That's the text, right? Then third of all, verses 28 through 32, here's the third thing. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, remember, suppression, exchange, all that, God gave them up to what kind of mind? debased mind to do what ought not, not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless." Although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Watch that last, that, that, that's kind of the capstone phrase right there. Well, I'm not really down into that, but I think it's fine. No, you give approval. And the world's going to want you, the world knows that it doesn't have the approval of God over certain behaviors, and so they want to find justification with the approval of, of humanity. So don't miss the big point. God's wrath is being poured out when? Right now. His wrath is being revealed from heaven. So somebody might say, hey, I'm just doing me. Don't play yourself. Doing me might be God doing him and giving you over to his wrath. As you turn away from the light. Well, third of all, we're going to look at the wrath of God that's going to be revealed in the future. The wrath of God was poured out in the past. The wrath of God is being poured out right now. And one day, the wrath of God, in a way we've never experienced it, will be poured out. Paul, and I, I'm, going to, I'm going to do this point real quick. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it says this. I'm picking up right in the middle of verse 7 if you, if you turn there. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day when he comes to be glorified in his saints and marveled at by all who believed. That's kind of cut and dry, isn't it? future wrath now as you as you in your mind think of um, the apostolic company and you were to if someone to say which one of those apostles do you think was the fire and brimstone guy which one would you pick i know who i'd go with i'd go with that salty fisherman peter right he'd be the fire and brimstone guy but you know who the fire and brimstone guy is the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest. Seems awkward to us today, but that, that's how they related. It was perfectly normal and fine. David, and Jonathan. It was John. John. Listen to what John says. In, in Revelation chapter 6, John says that the day's coming when the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful, well, let me cut to the chase. The call to the mountains and rocks, and it'll say, Fall on us and hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Did you ever connect wrath with Lamb? Jesus, the Lamb of God? For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? I'll flip over to Revelation 14. You can go there if you'd like with me, I'll read it. Talking about pouring out judgment. Verse 9, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur. Now, l- let me just say this. Um, the mark of the beast is not a vaccine, okay? Okay. <laughs> The mark of the beast is something you knowingly take in rejecting God, okay? Because I've heard some silly stuff out there, right? But it is real. And the point is when people reject God, they said, I want to receive wrath. And then I'll go to Revelation 19. This is the context of the wedding supper of the Lamb, an incredible celebration for all of God's kids. But then Jesus is going to come, and he's going to deal with the Auschwitzes, and he's going to deal with the sin in hearts conclusively and decisively. Because it says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he shall strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The wrath of God, my friends, was not invented by some jugular vein popping, red faced, air bagged, pulpit pounding, fear mongering preacher, unless you think Jesus fits that bill. Because Jesus talked about hell more than he did about heaven. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus talked about a time when the wheat is going to be separated from the tares, and the tares, the chaff is going to f- burn with fire unquenchable. Not just fire, fire unquenchable. In Matthew chapter 7, he talked about certain people, who he's going to say, people who rejected him or just plain, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Somebody says, well, he's just speaking metaphorically. If he is speaking metaphorically, that is not an escape hatch because the reality behind biblical metaphors are always worth worse than the metaphor itself. No one spoke more decisively and clearly and openly and plainly about the wrath of God than Jesus Christ himself. You wouldn't know that, though, would you? Have you had a pop culture, Jesus? Would you? And Matthew 10, 28, he said, do not fear him who can destroy your body, but not your soul. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. One guy said, and I would say this myself, I believe in the wrath of God because I believe in Jesus. <sighs> but you know what? Not only Did no one speak more clearly and candidly and plainly and openly about the wrath of God than Jesus? No one dealt with the wrath of God more fully and plainly and decisively than Jesus Christ. You remember that passage I just read from Revelation 14, the cup of God's wrath? That's actually all through the Old Testament. The prophets talk about this cup. That people who reject the living God will drink the cup of his fearful judgment, the cup of his fearful wrath. And the God man, Jesus Christ, he goes up into a garden and he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup was he talking about? The The cup of wrath. Right, Deborah, that's exactly it. And on the cross, he drank that cup, not in part, but in whole. He said, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. Jesus was exiled from God, and he experienced hell so that you don't have to be exiled from God and experience hell forever. And that's why we're going to sing this song, till on the cross as Jesus died, the Wrath of God was satisfied. That's awesome truth, isn't it? And he invites you to come. But Christians, do not countenance people who are downplaying and dismissing this. They've actually retooled that song, Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was glorified. We don't talk about wrath. Now, yeah, baby, the love of God was glorified at the cross precisely because the wrath of God was satisfied. In fact, that's why it says in 1 John 4, 10, it was love that compelled God to send his son Jesus. Hearing is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus would save whoever you are right now if you would turn to him. There is a lot today, and I must warn you about this, and I must continue to warn you about this, that is called Christianity. That is not actually Christianity in any biblical way, though they use the same terms. Sin, if the word is even used, and it rarely is, is not iniquity, twisting willfully what God wants you to do. It's not transgression. It's not rebellion. It's not missing the mark willfully. No sin. Come on, stop talking about sin. It's just an innocent mistake, a slip up. And therefore, God is not holy and offended by our sin. God is just hurt that we hurt ourselves with our slip-up. He's love. And therefore, there's no need for a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. He's already cool with us. He's like, come on, I love you guys so much. What can I do to show him that? Oh, I'll send him my son, just as an example. So as a result, Jesus becomes our therapist, our co-pilot, our life coach, not our wrath-absorbing Lord and Savior. And our biggest problem is life hasn't met what I expected to be, or I'm not satisfied, I haven't tapped into my potential and all that. Not that I have offended a thrice-holy God who has pure eyes to look upon sin who must deal with it. This famous quote from 1937, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, not Diedrich Bonhoeffer, um, a man named... I have it in here somewhere. Richard Niebuhr, you've probably heard this quote. He wrote a book, it's so applicable for today, The Kingdom of God in America, 1937. He said, and he's saying, being sarcastic, but this is the kind of gospel that's often preached, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. I'm just telling you, for revival to happen, we must recover the reality of God's wrath. Now, we must do it judiciously, right? And and in balanced fashion, in balance according to Scripture. But by the way, if you use the balance of Scripture, you will be called imbalance. Because somebody might be even thinking that right now. But all I did was talk about the wrath of God poured out in the past, the wrath of God being poured out in the present, and the wrath of God that will be poured out. July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards stepped into a pulpit in Enfield, Connecticut. And he preached a sermon that has been known as sinners in the hands of an angry God. The church had become lifeless, um, cold, formal, anti-supernatural. They didn't care about conversions. After all, we're all God's children. All of that mess. He used vivid imagery from the book of Deuteronomy, verse 35 of chapter 32, which says, Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of calamity is at hand, and their doom." Doom comes swiftly. And again, you, you, you can Google this message. You can, you can hear it recited. Obviously not by him. People have read it. You can read it. It's powerful. And he just used vivid imagery and he said, Sinners dangle by a single thread over the fires of God, much like a spider would dangle by a single thread over a fire. At any moment, a, fire, a, a flame is going to jump up and poof, that's it. Now, some people think Edwards, it's all they ever talk about with hell. They just don't know Edwards. He actually, somebody said, as much as he knew his hell, he knew his heaven a lot better. And he spoke much of heaven. But what happened that day is the crying and the weeping in the congregation actually prohibited from him finishing that sermon. People started to fall on their face of repentance. People said, I've never really been a Christian. I've been playing a game, and I'm, I'm playing Russian roulette with my soul. He wasn't the only guy to say, well, he's a Calvinist. You know, those Calvinists talk about that stuff. No, the Armenian John Wesley did too. He had these things called holy clubs, almost like D groups, And they would ask this question, do you wish to flee the wrath to come and be saved from your sins? And many people say it was precisely this kind of emphasis that helped ignite the first great awakening. And the impact was staggering. Many, many people who fancied themselves Christians because, after all, I'm not Muslim, I'm not whatever, and I've been in church, truly got saved. And many people outside the church, there was revival, there was revival. Many people outside the church, poor farmers, rich merchants, they came to faith in Christ. Thousands and thousands did. Hundreds and hundreds of churches impacted, planted. Schools established that people attend to this day. Societal ills pushed back against in some measure. The effects were staggering. Now to preach the wrath of God at all is going to be considered out of balance today, right? But if we would see revival, we have to be willing to bear the shame and return to the reality of the wrath of God. The last part of Packer's quote, I read it one more time, The fact is, the subject of divine wrath has been a taboo in modern society. And Christians, by and large, have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. Clearly, the theme of God's wrath is one about which the biblical writers feel no inhibition. Why, then, should we? And if you were here for the prayer meeting, the, the, the smaller prayer meeting we have called Boiler Room, invite you out. It's a great time, powerful time, important time. I asked everyone there I wonder if in this season we've allowed distractions to steer us away from being concerned about people's greatest danger. Because it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So I close and I do close with John Wesley's question. Do you wish to flee the wrath to come and be safe from your sins? Say, I'm fine. I'm doing me. Maybe you doing you is God doing him in judgment. Or maybe he's not pouring out judgment on you because he's such a merciful and gracious God. He slowed anger. I didn't even I didn't even give you this. There's there's two words for, for wrath in, in the Bible. The one word in the New Testament is thumos, from which you get the word thermometer. It's like Mercury, it skyrockets just like that on a hot day. It's capricious, it's knee-jerk. That's not the kind of wrath of, that's not the word for for Jesus' wrath. It's the word orge, which means a settled disposition against all that is wrong and evil. And that's why the Bible says God intends his goodness and kindness to lead us to repentance. Romans 2 and verse 4, but verse 5 says, because of the hardness and impenitence of your heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's wrath will be revealed. So, just because you're doing your thing and you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus and you even seem to be blessed, is, don't let that give you a false assurance. There was a farmer who was very vitriolic and antagonistic against Christians. There was a church right next to one of his fields. He made a point of every Lord's Day of every Sunday, which is what Sunday is, the Lord's Day, he made a point of every Lord's Day of plowing the field and being as loud as he could to disrupt their service. He did that all through the spring. Then he planted, and he was so pleased by the 4th of July, the corn was knee high. It looked like he was going to have a bumper crop. So much for their God. In fact, he had the best harvest he ever had. So he wrote a letter to the pastor of that congregation, and the letter said, Well, apparently your God isn't real because he just blessed me, and I've been making things so hard for you Christians. And the pastor wrote back a one-line letter. Be careful. God does not settle his accounts in October. Do you get that? But God settled the account at the cross for all who would believe. Jesus drank the cup of wrath that you and I might drink the cup of salvation. This is the word of God. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. And when we understand the reality of your wrath, we, 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 we change your, we see your love not as some sentimental, do whatever you want, non-transformative love that is peddled often in the name of Christianity, but a robust love that saw us at our worst and did everything to redeem us. God bearing his own wrath to save us from the wrath we deserve. And as we turn to the Lord's table, Lord, I pray that we would see something in the Lord's table that reflects what Jesus went to drink that, through to drink that cup. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is the Lord's table right here. You should have, um, looking forward to going back to how we used to do Lord's Supper, but we have some of these. Um, There's the bread represented by the wafer and then the juice, the wine represented by the juice. On the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had eaten it, he said, Take, eat every one of you. This is my body broken for you. And when they had finished the meal, he took the cup and he said, Drink this, every one of you. This is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. Now, if you have never confessed your sin and turned to Jesus in any real way, do not, do not, do not do this. I don't usually warn people so, so strongly, but in 1 Corinthians 11, that's what the Apostle Paul does. If you are taking this without really having seen your sin and run to the Savior, you're actually putting more stuff in the cup of your wrath. That's why he says this is a very, it's it's a celebration. This ain't a funeral, but it's a serious one, right? But if you have, then I want to assure you, brother and sister, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there is no sin that you have ever committed that is not washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. I guarantee you this. If there was a movie played of the sins of my life, I would probably run out of here and I would never want you to see my face again, God has seen them, and Jesus took them on the cross. He took all the sin of all who believe. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So whether it's any of the sins that that we talked about here from Romans 1, you you know what it says in 1 Corinthians? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's the sexual morality, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, etc., etc., will inherit the kingdom of God, not while you're sticking to your sin. But then he says, but you were washed, but you were justified, but you were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's talking to people who, who were in those lifestyles who've been redeemed out of it. So do not let the devil lie to you that you've sinned away grace. You haven't. What you do need to do is repent of your sin and receive the Savior. And what a great day that would be. <laughs> that would be the day of salvation for you. And if, if that's you, you can call upon him right now. And if you need to talk to somebody, please talk to Pastor Charles, Pastor Cleet, maybe whoever brought you. Our desire is that people <laughs> flee the wrath to come and find forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. That is is what begins to change a human heart and a human society. Let's eat and drink and celebrate.